Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December the 17th, 2018. This is episode 2347, 2347 of the Survival Podcast, and what we will call Wind Down Week. Yes, we're winding down. Uh, this is the week before the Christmas week, and I will officially shut down TSP on Friday. On Friday, I will do the Christmas special, and then advise you to spend as much time as you can with your family between now and the new year. And then we will come back on January 2nd, I think is what I've decided, uh, and resume your regularly scheduled programming. And we'll talk about the new year, new me. No, we're not going to do that. I'm going to be the same jerk I've been for the last 10 years. I commit to you to do that. And uh, would say that if you want to improve yourself, don't do anything with the new year. Just just improve yourself and do it because you want to, not because, well, I don't know, some online slogan made you think it was a good idea. Anyway, what are we going to do today as a listener feedback show? Because we are mostly going to be on regularly scheduled programming this week. I'm going to do a little bit of jostling around. Uh, first of all, I want to make an apology. I am sorry. Uh, the lifetime membership sale that was supposed to start this morning at 9 a.m. didn't. Um, there was a, quite a bit going on in the house this morning, and basically I just let it slip and didn't realize what time it was. Um, one of the things that happened is Dorothy booked um, the groomer to come take care of Max because we we really need help when it comes to, to giving Max a good brush out and clipping and bath and all that. He's just too big of a dog. Um, and I'm the only one that can actually make him do what the groomer wants. And Dorothy scheduled it right at 9 o'clock and then told me, and uh, don't worry, I mean, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. That's all it comes down to. It. Um, here's the deal, though. I didn't go ahead and turn it on because it was like 10 o'clock by the time I realized it was 10 o'clock and I'd screwed it up by an hour. And I thought it would be really unfair if somebody got up, was waiting to do it, and at like 9.15, 9.30, 10.45, 10.50, whatever, or 9.50, they said, eh, it's not happening today, and they left. And then I turned it on, and then they missed out. So I will run it tomorrow at 9 a.m. It's one of those things, a lot of stuff you can do like this, you just set WordPress and say, WordPress, publish it at this time, and let it go. Uh, when I do these, because there's a manual component to it and all, I, I want to be at the computer when I turn it on and be able to handle stuff as it goes. So I'm sorry, I'll fix it tomorrow. What are we going to talk about today, though? I got a bunch of requests recently for spreadsheets. People want my spreadsheet that I use to figure out whether or not I should buy or lease a car. People want my spreadsheet to figure out you know, uh, what the uh, running numbers on a farm sales or something like that. Uh, no. And I'll tell you why. But I, I, you, a lot of you will be able to figure it out just from the title of this segment. Excel spreadsheets and teaching a man to fish. Uh, next up, a couple emails on a thing called the Scavenger Six Rifle. Uh, why I think it's stupid and brilliant at the same time is the name of that segment. Questions on my quail aviary, what I might do differently. Um, I'm going to do a segment on what I'm going to call dogs that protect livestock ver versus designated livestock guardian dogs. I have a question on training guardian dogs. And I, I am a guy that quickly admits my limits, and uh, I can help here, but I cannot. Uh, I can only help on one side of that equation. 
because they only have experience on one side of that equation. Um, also today, what we can learn from a 50-year-old lesson in fascism. This is a fascinating story about a history teacher that basically turned his class and, and started to grow a movement of full-on fascist students in a week. In a week. It's, it, it's, it's crazy. And I don't think we've learned the lesson of this thing yet, even though they studied all the time in uh, psychology classes. And uh, I think probably the psychology classes are, are, are worse about not learning. And I'll explain why we get to it. Um, a real quick question on uh, getting a promotion and having a coworker ask you about your salary. I will tell you why you should never, ever, never, ever, never, ever, never, never, ever, ever discuss your salary with coworkers, unless it's your supervisor and you're talking about getting a raise. Uh, and I think I'll give you a one-line explanation that will completely and forever end any question in your mind about whether or not it's a good idea, because it ain't. It's, there's nothing good to come from it. Um, what is sweet osmanthus, and why should you even care? Well, you may not, but you might. So I'm going to tell you what it is, and I think it's kind of cool. Uh, some schools are starting to ban homework. Now, here's the reason I'll, I'm going to give you the reason I agree with it, not, not the reason that they say they're doing it or why people say they're doing it or why people say it's a mistake. I'll tell you the basics of why I think it makes perfect sense that, that there should be almost no homework in school, that maybe there should be you know a paper to write in this class or that class. that It takes some time and research and all. But in general, well, I think homework is stupid. and doesn't make any sense uh, if the schools were doing what they claim that they're doing. Um, and then I have another thing on education. Is college dead, or are we actually starting to understand it better? There's a guy that says it's dead, and I'll tell you why. As hard as I am on college, I, I don't agree. And uh, our last segment today we're calling of prepper groups, organization, and tin hats. We'll get to all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, number one today is RidgeWallet.com. I love the Ridge Wallet, man. Ridge Wallet is great. I had, I was, I want to say forced because it's not really the thing. I was coerced into once again going to Six Flags Over Texas Holiday in the Park with my family yesterday. Uh, they have a tendency to do this every year so we can get pictures with Santa. And by the way, the Santa at Six Flags has gone from being one of the coolest Santas I've ever seen to a guy that looks like he's homeless. I really think Six Flags needs to step their Santa game up if we're going to rope me into this again. Um, but uh, we go there, and I, I get to miss the, the Patriots and the Steelers. And what does this have to do with the Ridge Wall? It has to do with when we went through security, because Six Flags, like many places now, has metal detectors, and you got to take all your stuff out. And I had to take my knife off of my keychain in the car not have that, because God knows with my little freaking two-inch talent, I think I could run around and kill half the people in Six Flags or something. But anyway, I take all this stuff out and put it in a little bin like you do at an airport. And the guy goes, that's a Ridge Wallet. I was like, yeah, it is. And it, it, it amazes me that we have a sponsor now that's that well-known. It seems like everywhere I go and I pull a thing up, I'm like, that's the Ridge Wallet. The reason is because it's so damn gone cool. It works so good. It helps declutter your life, and it helps protect your identity. You can learn more at RidgeWallet.com. They have a lot of other cool stuff there as well. They have phone cases. They got a really cool day pack, uh, backup charging stuff. It's, it's awesome. Check them out at RidgeWallet.com. Remember, you can get a discount if you're an MSB member on all their stuff. Next up today, JM Bullion. Um, I believe that silver and gold is one of the greatest ways to ensure your wealth and preserve what I call generational wealth. Uh, there's really, in my mind, no better way to be able to live a legacy of wealth to your future heirs than to have physical silver and gold you can put your hands on 
and at some point decide you're close enough to cashing your chips in to take those chips and pass them on and just you, the person you're handing them to in the fence post, are the only people that ever need to know. Uh, and that money and that wealth can stay in the family for generations upon generations and be used in small, you know, fungible amounts as necessary. That is, that is my primary reason for silver and gold. I recommend uh, storing about 5% to 10% of your net total wealth in silver and gold. I'm not an all-in guy. I'm not one of these guys like, you need it because the dollar's going to crash tomorrow. They've been saying that for 30 years, and they're still taking your dollars for their silver and gold. No way. Um, now, Jam Bullion is where I go to get my silver and gold because they have the best pricing that I have found anywhere. They do all order ship for free. They give a discount to me and my members on orders over $300. Uh, and if there's ever a problem, and it ain't been for a long time, but if there is ever a problem, I can get right in touch with the, the President Michael and he takes care of it. Um, I've been approached by other large silver and gold houses and, you know, none of them really want to play ball that way. None of them want to, you know, price match guarantee. None of them want to give me the name of like, you know, their CEO or their president or somebody that can actually get shit done. Uh, personal contact information. None of them want to do that. They just want to buy an advertisement. You know, I try to keep things in the family here and that means that I, I expect family to take care of each other. And, and J.M. Bullion has always stepped up when there have been some issues and has always made it right. Uh, that's why they're my go-to source for silver and gold and why I recommend them for you as well. Before we get into your feedback, let's go ahead and take a look at this day in history. Let's go back to 1991, a year that many of us that listen to the Survival Podcast can remember kind of where we were and what we were doing. I was in the United States Army at this time, and at this point we had trained uh, pretty much our, our, our entire training was based on the fact that if there ever was a really big war, And there were enemies. It'd be Russian tanks that we were going up against, and Russians, and nuclear bombs, and biological and chemical war warfare. And the Soviet Union was the greatest threat known to man. And then, in December, specifically December 17th, 1991, Boris Yeltsin's supporters announced the Soviet Union will cease to exist by New Year's Eve. After a long meeting between Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev And President of the Russian Federation, Boris Yeltsin, a spokesman for the latter, announced the Soviet Union will officially cease to exist on or before New Year's Eve. Yeltsin declared that there will be no more red flag. It was a rather anticlimactic climation of events toward uh, a dismantling of the Soviet Union. Despite its dramatic implications, the announcement inspired mostly yawns and skeptical jokes from the Russian population, weary from months of political intrigue and instability and crumbling economy. For many people... The Soviet Union had already disintegrated. The various Russian republics had already declared their independence. In a few days, they would meet and form the Commonwealth of Independent States. Gorbachev's power was steadily ebbing. The coup attempt previous August had already nearly toppled him. Yeltsin, on the other hand, was busily planning to take over Soviet facilities and the symbolic lowering of the hammer and sickle to be replaced by the, Russia, the flag of Russia. Even Gorbachev seemed to accept the inevitable, taking time off from his less than meaningful job to have a photo op with the rock group, Scorpions. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's interesting, isn't it, you know? Um, I'll tell you, this was, this was an interesting time in history to be in the military. Um, and it also makes me kind of realize, look, I know we had just had Desert Storm and Iraq and, and all that, but it really is this point in time where all of a sudden Islamic terrorism is the greatest threat known to man and we have this new enemy. And when I look back through my own personal history, spanning almost a half of a century at this point, I now realize how it has always been the case that the people that run our country have always needed an enemy to point to, to keep us in fear. 
I'm not even saying that those enemies were never real or there was never any danger whatsoever. I'm saying they needed an enemy. And if the enemy wasn't big enough, it was very important to make the enemy look bigger than it was. Because that's how you get things done when you're controlling a population. That's all I'll say about that because we'll learn more about that in a segment that we have for today's show. So let's, let's get into it. So I wanted to start out with a segment I'm calling Excel Spreadsheets and Teaching Amanda Fish. So I've talked a lot about Excel over the years, and usually when I do, I'll get an email or one, you know, one or two about, can I have your spreadsheet? And usually I just say no. Uh, go, to, go to YouTube and learn how to make a spreadsheet. Um, this recent segment, for some reason, I got way more than normal. I mean, it was probably a good, I'd say almost two dozen people want my spreadsheet that I used um, for determining whether to lease or buy a car. And the way I would put this is, and I don't mean, I'm not being mean to anybody, okay? This is not about being mean. This is not about berating. This is not about talking down. This is uh, truly, I want, to, I want to bring people up here. I will not give a crutch to a man who doesn't need the crutch. If you have a broken leg or something and you really need a crutch to be able to walk, I will give you a crutch. I will go make you a crutch if I do not have one. But a person that, like, their foot hurts a little bit, and what they really need to do is rub it out and walk it off, I'm not giving you a crutch. I'm not even telling you where you can find a crutch. If you insist on a crutch, you can go get one. And what I mean by that is Excel is one of the easiest programs to learn on planet Earth. Anything you want to do in Excel, you can type into Google, how do I fill in the blank in Excel? And you will find a video that shows you exactly how to do it. Um, while Microsoft isn't the greatest company in the world when it comes to their supporting documentation, their help files actually are pretty decent. And between YouTube and the help function in Excel, if you can't figure out how to do something, I'm probably not going to be able to teach you anyway. Um, but this is a bigger thing. Let's say I give you my spreadsheet that I built when I bought our car, or I leased our car. Then what I have done is given you a, a single tool that does a single job Actually, I've given you a tool that does a hundred jobs, but you only know how to do one job with it because it's got certain names on it. Um, I've given you, uh, I've attached, I, I basically uh, have injected you with parsley disease. Like now you become attached to that spreadsheet, and, and maybe that spreadsheet doesn't even do what you really want or need it to do. But what happens when you decide uh, next month, because you're going to take your downtime and start thinking about a business, You know, I'm really thinking about maybe Jack's right about this, uh, this uh, building a business of my own. And I'm thinking about, you know, building this product and selling it. And I want to figure out what my real cost of goods sold is, what my margin is. If I ever have to pay somebody to do labor to, uh, to do this, and it's not my labor, like, would I still be profitable? What would labor cost to do this? Uh, how do I make this business scalable? And how do I sanity check this so that I know my pricing Uh, matches not just the market, but matches my costs. And then I want to build this so that if I start leaning my costs out, I can just start changing numbers and everything changes, and I can work with it until I figure out what does make sense or realize this doesn't make sense. My spreadsheet on, on lease versus buy of a car that was specific to my needs for that situation will do you no good whatsoever. And I really believe that using Microsoft Excel is a life skill. And I, I don't care if you use whatever they call it in Pages in, in, uh, in, in Apple or you use the free one that's available with Google Documents or whatever. When I say Excel, I mean using a spreadsheet. And 
All you really have to know how to do to be able to build a spreadsheet is the following. First, clearly define what you want to know. And, and then write down all, with a piece of scrap paper, just write down all the elements that are in there that you need to, that you need to know. And then just start working on it and figure it out. Because if you do that, it's like Pandora's box. All of a sudden you'll be like, well, I, I can figure out just about anything that has numbers in it with this. And I can change this and that. And, and I'll tell you, all you really need to be able to do from a mathematical standpoint to get 99% of what any normal person will ever need Excel to do for them is the most basic algebra knowledge known to man. That's really it. And, and by, by that I mean my dear Aunt Sally, right? If you can multiply right, and divide before you add and subtract... And I don't remember the whole acronym, but there's something that brings in parentheses and brackets in there. And you know that parentheses go first and, you know, then if you can do that, you can make Excel do whatever you need it to do to give you the information that you need to have. There are some features that when you learn them, they'll speed things up for you. Uh, you learn how to do formulas and stuff like that, how to know what cell to refer back to, how to do autofill, autototals and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, but... Again, if I hand you that, it doesn't do you any good. And then one guy told, I'm sorry, I said this to him, a real brief version of an email. He said, well, I do know how to do all that. I just don't want to do it for this. I'm like, if, if you know how to do all that, you could have done it, and it's a five-minute job to build a spreadsheet on this. And I think that even if you do, then you should, because every time we build a new spreadsheet, especially from scratch, we get better at it. And, and I would say that, like, You know, we talk a lot about skills to teach kids. When your kid gets out of high school, they should be able to do an a spreadsheet model of about any budgetary decision they're going to ever have to make in their life. They should have that skill. And their, their teachers are not going to teach them how to do it. They'll use Excel and some other stuff in school, but they won't use it that way because if they did, then they might actually run the numbers about college like we're going to talk about a little bit later and, and a hell of a lot less than would buy into the bullshit and go if they did. So they're not going to learn that. So you're going to have to teach them, which means you're going to have to know. And, and this is important enough that I refuse to enable anybody to shortcut it. I, I, I mean... I want you to learn how to do this for me. I want you to learn how to do this for yourself, right? I want you to do me. Hey, here's what I want for me. I want you to do me a favor by teaching yourself how to do this for your own good is the best way. In fact, I would say this. If you'd always thought, you know, it's Christmas, and I don't really know Jack personally, but I listen to him all the time, and I'd like to give Jack a Christmas present. My Christmas present from you can be build yourself a spreadsheet that helps you do something, you know, with your life and teach your kids how to do it. That would be a great Christmas present. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you how important it is. The majority of divorces in this country come down to financial stress, even when they end up resulting in something like infidelity. The majority of the time, there is some sort of financial stress in a family that leads to whatever other thing actually triggers the divorce. But it's very seldom that I've talked to people who are going through or had gone through a divorce and they were financially healthy. I'm not saying it never happens. I'm saying it's rare. And the majority of Americans, if they would simply know how to budget with a spreadsheet 
and run their, their family's budget on a spreadsheet, they would be financially healthy. Even if they're lower income people, they would still be financially healthy. Because they would be in touch with reality at all times. They wouldn't get themselves into trouble. And they would know what they need to do to better their situation. Instead of deluding themselves. I, I talk to people all the time. Well, if we just can make some more money. I'm going to get a raise next month. And I'm like, you're going to have that money spent before you even get it. Like, the, the, the sad thing is when you're financially not healthy, more money makes you sicker. Excel can help you plan a business. Excel can help you sanity check your decisions. Excel can make you make healthy financial choices when it's choice A and B, buy or lease, etc. Excel can do so much for you, I refuse to take it away from you by, by giving you any kind of a, of a crutch with it. I want you to learn how to use it because I believe it's that important. Next, let's talk about something called the Scavenger 6 Rifle. I'll have a link in the show notes where you can see this thing. Uh, but let me give you the basics of what it is. It's a rifle revolver. Um, if you think about the old like cowboy rifle revolver six shooters, right? It's kind of like a modern version of that. It kind of looks like a BFR, if you know what that stands for, big effing revolver. Um, and it can shoot anything from like .22 up to like .308s. It has barrels that swap out and all, and it, it's, it's being marketed as for when the shit really hits the fan. You'll be able to shoot anything at anybody and... It's a six-shooter, and those are more reliable than semi-autos. Of course, that's why the military uses revolvers and all the police. Wait a minute. Um, this thing's about $3,200 uh, for the base model. But you can get the one that shoots like all 32 things it's capable of shooting for like $12,000. Um, a couple of people sent me, actually more than a couple, but uh, Steve-O from the forum sent it to me. And don't think I'm picking on you, Steve, because I'm not. Because you weren't like, gee, I'm going to go out and buy one of these. Just like it's an interesting idea, fancy revolver rifle and a link to scavenger6.com. But uh, Dylan sent me uh, an email on it. He was a little less kind. He said, I thought you'd appreciate a chuckle at this. Assuming there was a Teotihuacan, which is the end of the world as we know it for the uninitiated, uh, where you needed to scavenge ammo, you'd have plenty, uh, you'd needed to pre-buy all the cylinders and carry them around with you so you could scavenge. So not practical at all. Anyone has ever created a real kit, better to just buy bulk ammo of your own. Uh, works if times get tougher, even if they don't. Uh, have a great holiday break. Uh, and it's the ultimate doomsday rifle. She's 21. So it's 21 different kinds of ammo. And if you want it to be able to do that, it's about $12,000 and change. Uh, the gun does not exist yet. They're taking pre-orders on it. And you can either buy the $3,200 basic kit that does some transformer ring or you can buy this one that shoots everything um don't do this just don't this doesn't make any sense i think this thing is stupid uh, honestly the weight involved first of all the thing itself the base thing is 12 but uh, 12 uh i'm sorry 12 pounds uh Yeah, that's that's heavy for a carbine to begin with. And you got to climb and carry ammo for it and other you're going to be able to scavenge it. Look, first of all, we're not going to have the kind of doomsday that people sell this kind of thing to. We'll talk a little about tin hats at the end of today's show. Um, you're not going to be running around scavenging ammo and shooting people. If you ever ended up in a place where you're trying to feed yourself and protect yourself, you know, you're better off with something like a shotgun and a variety of ammo for it, or a 22, 
or something like a 357 or a 44 Magnum carbine uh, with various powered loads and the ability to do reloading for yourself. Now, all of that shit can be done for far less money than this. If you want to shoot multiple calibers, you check out Frontier Tactical and the Warlock, and for the money that they're talking about, you can do all of this and more on an AR platform that actually makes some dadgone sense. Um, this makes This is stupid, but it's also brilliant. And I'm going to tell you why it's brilliant. Because this guy's going to make money because people are going to buy the damn thing. People are going to buy this. People are going to spend the money. This, this doesn't even exist. It is a, at best, prototype. And he's getting, you know, big name gun reviewer YouTubers to talk about how what a wonderful thing it is and getting that on video and made himself a slick production. And he's, he's willing to take your money before there is even a gun. And I'm not saying he's a scam artist because he's not. I, at least I don't think he is. I highly doubt you're going to give me your money. He's going to haul ass and not produce. He's building a ridiculous gun, making good money doing it, and getting paid in advance. I think that's brilliant. That's somebody identifying a market and going out and exploiting it. And this brings me to a completely different subject here. Um, recently, I saw a thing on Facebook. It's some company. I don't remember the name now. Some arts and artsy-fartsy, yuppie-type decoration, kind of like a upscale version of Pottery Barn. And they sold this bundle of birch sticks for $45. It's like 12 pieces of birch twigs, you know, about a foot long, tied together with two pieces of twine, like hemp twine or something. So it's all rustic looking. And it's $45. And they sold, however many they had, they sold out. <clears throat> so they sold tens and thousands of dollars of this, this, these bundles of sticks. And I, when I shared it, I said a lot of people are saying this, this proves how stupid we are. I'm like, no, what this proves is how you don't have an excuse for being dead-ass broke. That, like, if this company can sell a bundle of sticks for $45, then what is your excuse for not going out and, and making money? And there was some agreement, and there was some blah, 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 you don't understand, it's hard. And, and the one that was that I felt compelled to respond to and said, you're very good at making excuses. The guy said, well, this is a big company. They've been in business for a long time, and they have a really strong market that they're able to sell into. So they put this, and the average person just can't do this. And, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Get an effing life. The point is they are able to sell a bundle of sticks for $45. I don't, I'm not saying you should go out and start making bundles of sticks and selling them, though you might be able to. I don't know. It depends on how creative your marketing is. You don't need to sell tens of thousands of them. If you were able to sell 10 of those a month, that's 450 bucks. If you just did that, and I'm not saying you should, I'm just saying if you could, if you could do that much and you only took that money and stuck it into retirement and figured out how to make $450 a month until you retired, And, and you didn't put any of your own money into retirement the way you're supposed to, and just relied on Social Security, unless you're old as shit already, you'd probably retire a millionaire off of bundles of sticks. But that's not really the point. The point is, if they can make money off something that stupid, surely you can come up with something that's not that stupid to make money off of. And our friend here with this gun has shown that, you know, maybe you can even come up with something stupid if there's enough people willing to pay for it. Because you're not talking about, I mean, think about this, you're talking about $3,200 for the base model. 
the translation to that is there's stupid people with money, and some of those stupid people might give you their money if you gave them the opportunity to do so. And, and, and to be fair, I'm trying to come up with a redeeming quality for this thing, and I can't do it. I can't see a world where I would recommend anybody spend their money on this. I'll, I'll put it this way. The guy that's doing it reached out to me, Jack, you know what I'll do? I'll send you the whole thing. The whole thing, all of it, the $12,000 package, I'll send it to you. If you'll review it and recommend it, I, I would have to say no. Now, if he offered to give it to me with no strings attached, I might take it, immediately put it on eBay for like six, well, I can't do it on eBay. Put it on Grunbroker for six grand and sell it and get rid of it and get money for it. Uh, so I would see the only value I'd seen is the ability to get money for it. Now, I'd have to do it under a fake name because I don't want to be associated with it because I could not endorse this. So I'm not saying you should go do something that's stupid. And when I when I saw the, the bundle of sticks, I wasn't suggesting people do something that stupid. What I am suggesting is if you can make money being that stupid, surely you can come up with some value to make some money. Just a thought there. So next up, uh, Dina says, What are some design modifications you would make or have made to your quail aviary? We want to ramp up our quail production, and we want to mimic your aviary design. Before we build it, I want to know any suggestions, modifications you would make if you were to build it again from start to finish. Thank you. Okay, so, Dana, I'd make sure, first of all, that you are making decisions based on the aviary we have, not the aviary we started with. So I basically just built a 50-foot-long box out of two-by-tens, uh, two I think is what I used for the base, Um and used uh, cattle panels and basically did the, you know, kind of the uh, the covered wagon thing where you put it on one side, put it on the other, strap them down with plumbing strap, wire them all together, build door frames on it, and put, um, what do you call it, uh, hardware cloth, but, uh, I think it's half-inch, quarter-inch hardware cloth on the outside so that the birds couldn't get through and nothing could get into them. And when I initially did it, I thought it would be good for it to be wider than most people do when they do that type of a design. And I did it at 10 foot of width. And you kind of had to slump over to walk in there. And it was okay. It was probably worth it for the extra two feet of width uh, until we decided to put our planters in there for our aquaponics system. And then we ended up basically pulling up one side. And on the back side, we put a nine-foot wall. And now it's more of a lean-to configuration. And it's... It's, it's very roomy like that, and, and I like it that way. If I was only going to do a couple dozen quail or less, you know, I might do a 25-foot, 8-foot wide and just do the, 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 the standard, you know, kind of covered wagon design. Because it's, it's, it, if there's not going to be anything else in there, it's more than sufficient. Don't go 10-foot wide. It's not just that the center's lower. The walls are more angled. If you do 8-foot with a 16-foot panel as your width, your walls are pretty straight, and you can get right up against the corner no problem. So I would suggest that. If you're going to do something more like mine where you're going to have like planters of some kind in there, um, think about your design. Like We kind of had to do it the way we did it, but we have nine stands, and each stand is holding a 100-gallon Rubbermaid tub that's made into a wicking bed. Uh, and then the aquaponic system runs through those and returns back to the main thing. It all works out good and well, except, and, and up against that back wall, it works out great, except the quail occasionally will lay an egg almost dead center of one of those stands up against the back wall. 
And there are times when that egg sits there and rots because I'm just not crawling way up under there. There's only a couple spots. You know, there's a little small area where my arms are just not quite long enough to be able to reach in and grab those eggs. But I would think a little bit more about that uh, when you do your design uh, probably than I did. The other thing is, you know, we use standard doors from Home Depot, like screen doors. And um, we painted them and did everything you're supposed to with them. But those doors, even though they're marketed as a storm door, kind of sort of get weak over time, especially being open and closed a lot. And what I ended up doing was take some lumber, reinforcement lumber, and uh, some, some screws, some like deck screws, and basically reinforce the frame. Uh, I might either do that from the beginning or do my own door frames. But the bigger reason I'm getting on the doors here is it might be a good idea to do kind of a double door thing. Even if you use a standard size door, maybe have a, a, a small half door or something that maybe only gets open once in a while. Because, boy, I wish I could get a wheelbarrow in there. Why? Uh, mulch. Because when they've worn the mulch out, and you got to mulch it, basically I take the wheelbarrow there, and I end up bringing the mulch in with, with buckets. There's, I really can't get a wheelbarrow in there very well. So that's something else I would think about, how you're going to be able to get your mulch in there to do a deep litter mulch. Um, and, and then from there, I mean, pretty much it depends on what you wanted to do. Uh, one thing we never really did get done was developing systems where uh, we could use hardware cloth and throw down um, like seeds and have it grow fodder for them and they could eat it without getting all the way down. Uh, I just decided it's just not worth the effort for me uh, to really do that. It's easier to just to grow some sunflower sprouts and throw them to them once a day. Uh, but if you wanted to do that, I think it could make a lot of sense. So think about that. But the biggest thing is however much room you're going to leave for yourself, go a little bigger if you can. And, uh, you know, you will never be like, gee, I wish this was smaller. So go a little bigger than you planned. Building with the, um, the hog panels. It is really easy. It is really fast. It makes the ends and the doors complicated. Um, it will cost a little more. And it will take a little bit more carpentry knowledge if you were to build it in a, you know, a more of a stick form with, you know, straight walls and all. But in the end, it will actually be easier. So you're getting a cost savings by going with the hog panels, but you're actually going to do more work because when you start framing out the, the ends, it, it, it's a little bit complicated. Um, but, It's also, it depends on what you consider hard versus easy. To me, the panels are easy and are so easy to do that it's worth the extra time to frame the ends out. And I had to build two more frames because it was so long. So we got a frame on each end, obviously, but then I have two frames. Uh, so this basically into three 16-foot sections. And so if you didn't have to do those internal ones, it would make it even more the case that, you know, you could justify the hog panels. So that, that's the best I can do for you on that, Dean. If you have anything more specific, let me know. I'll do some follow-up. Um, next up, uh, I have a question here from Eric. Eric says, can you give me some do's and don't tips for training a guardian dog? I'm just south of Atlanta. I have a puppy I want to train as a guardian dog. She's nine weeks old, Border Collie Great Pyrenees Mix. I have chickens. And we'll be getting goats this spring. I can already see some of the Pyrenees traits. I'm hoping for some of the Border Collie intelligence. Oh, you'll get it. That's an interesting mix there. 
Uh, thanks for all you do. Uh, I wouldn't be upset if you did a whole show on this subject. Eric and uh, Griffin, Georgia, I imagine that is. Eric, um, I probably wouldn't because if we're going to go dedicated, actual livestock guardian dog, dog is bonded to the animals. Dog doesn't come in the house. Dog lives with the animals. Dog sees animals as 100% dedicated to their pack, so much so that you are the human that is tolerated and your kids are the humans that are tolerated. You guys come around and you help them. But that dog almost views you more like the chickens and goats view you than a dog generally views you. And that's how a lot of dedicated livestock guardian dogs really are. That's, that's how that's set up. You train that dog to be bonded to those animals, and that dog won't leave those animals. And the Pyrenees is a good breed for that, and Border Collies can be. Now, Border Collies also have a great deal of a, a need to herd and move things, and that can be good. I really encourage you to work with someone that knows how to handle that instinct and channel it and, and have them probably use it once in a while because it'll get that out of them and make them a little bit more settled in their role as being companions to the animals, regardless of how you're going to do this. Um, but as far as a dedicated uh, LSD, um, I, I, I really can't. I really can't because I don't know. I've never trained a dog to do that. I can give you some basic principles on how to train your dog to defend your animals if your dog is going to be a dog that lives at your house that chases stuff away that could be a threat to your animals and really is a dog that is a family dog which I prefer, and to me, for me to have a dedicated livestock guardian dog, agriculture has to be my business. Like, if it's just for homestead stuff, I'm not having a dog that I treat like livestock. And I know that might just be me, but that's how I feel. So in that case, what you need to do, first of all, right now, while this dog is young, is you need to be desensitizing this dog to your animals. So a light leash, and that dog should be every morning when you go out to see the chickens, that dog should be with you. That dog should be around the chickens. You should be handling the chickens. And any time that dog shows anything that's prey drive aggressive, the dog needs to be corrected immediately. No. And part of that is basic training and a dog even understanding what no means. But always use the same correction when you want a no, which is the same word and the same action. You know, no. And, and, and to me, usually, it's a jerk of the leash and a snap of the fingers on the free hand. You know, when I have that dog on a leash, no, just like that. And it, the jerk and the snap are instantaneously together. Because what that does is later, when that dog is off that leash, the verbal command and that other sound, that snap of the fingers, has another connotation to it that I'm serious. I'm so serial. <laughs> I'm serial, right? So anyway, so I'm serious about it. Because that also allows me at times just to snap my fingers and the dog, I got the dogs like, it's, it's kind of like clicker training to a degree. But that, that snap is connotative with no. So I have three different signals to that dog that I'm displeased with its, with its behavior. And I can rely on them because I might actually be in a situation where I'm dealing with something over here that's got my attention. The dog is giving me a behavior I don't want. And if I can, immediately convey to that dog, I don't want that behavior, it makes my whole situation, it lowers my stress and makes it easier to deal with all of it, including the dog. You want a dog that's not stressed, his owner, his pack leader should not be stressed. So that would be a, a big piece of this, is desensitization to the animals. The animals are not to be trifled with, they're not to be messed with. And then the other real thing is 
to keep in the dog's mindset that if it doesn't belong here, it needs to go away. And all I can tell you is that I've done with my dogs, and the number one way I've gotten dogs is, is, is when you see, you get a training opportunity. Like I want hawks chased away. I can't teach the dog a hawk from a crow from a buzzard. So I don't care what it is. If it's a bird that's bigger than a blue jay or a robin, it's a bad bird. And I'll grab the dog's head when they're, when they're young, before they understand this, and I will point their eyes till they I can tell they see what I'm so I'm down on one knee here and I've got the dog's head like a camera on a tripod and I go well, look 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 and when I see that dog lock on I go oh bad bird bad go get him get him get him and it just seems like that inflection it's it's universal with dogs and they'll they'll kind of at least go in that direction and you know and that thing will fly away good boy good and love them up right so if they start getting the point like The master is pleased when I don't mess with the animals that live here, and any animal that's not one of those animals that comes here has to go away. Your job's half done. Because all you're looking for out of that animal then is to be able to, and most likely, you know, you'll probably use your dog to defend your livestock the way that I do. That's what I'm guessing here. Um, because what that is going to mean is any time of the year that I think there might be danger or whatever, I'm just putting the dogs outside during the day. And if the dogs are outside during the day a lot, not even all the time, then the, the predators in the area kind of get the idea that if, if I go there, there's a big thing that's going to eat me, and they don't want to be there. And, you know, with chickens and stuff, your main concern with predators is hawks and, and, and eagles and stuff like that. And, you know, dogs aren't going to be able to catch them, but the bird doesn't understand that. The bird just knows every time I go down there, this big crazy thing starts barking at me and chasing me, and I don't want to do this, and I'd rather go over that field over there and eat a rabbit or a, a rat or something because this seems dangerous and scary. Um, you know, raccoons and stuff like that, they're generally, even foxes, they're generally a problem at night. Coyotes can be a problem during the day, but, you know, you need to have your dogs trained right if they're going to deal with coyotes. And, and, and I really feel that, you know, coyotes are a situation, even big dogs, you really want, if you have a real coyote problem, you want more than one dog. You want more than one dog, and you want some way that dog's either trained or fenced to stay on your property. Because coyote packs, and, and packs are a thing whether people want to believe it or not, will lure inexperienced dogs off of property to where they have a numerical advantage and kill them. And that's why good... Good guardian dogs you keep in multiples, and generally you train new dogs with older dogs, and the older dogs will keep that pup from running out there in places where the dog can, like where the cattle are held in with uh, you know electro tape or something where the dogs can get through and the cattle can't. They need to be able to, to, to learn from the other dogs. Again, that's beyond the scope of what I can tell you about other than my general knowledge of it. If you mean a full-on livestock guardian dog lives with like that type of dedicated animal, then I suggest that you find someone local to your area that that's what they do, and you pay them, and you get them there as a consultant, and you get them to train your dog right. Because unless you, this is one of those things, you can't really... You can't really fumble your way through it. It's got to be done right, and you're going to need someone that knows to help you learn Uh, or you can ruin your dog. I mean, that's really the case. But general, just defensive, I'm the family dog, stuff's not around here. And, and you need to, like, one of the bigger things you need to do here is understand that the dog will begin to feel that way about humans, too, which is not necessarily bad. And, and specifically, Border Collies, known as a very intelligent, very 
fun dog, very energetic dog. They can actually be very defensive and very quick to bite people. They're the dog that your kid can back them into a corner and put shoes on them when the kid's a toddler. And the dog will just, uh, okay, I got to deal with this. But the stranger, they'll bite. So you then have to develop something that tells the dog, this person's allowed. And for our dogs, I've taught them that when the person comes in and they're allowed in, that then they're okay. When they're on the other side of the fence, unless you know them, and I mean really know them, they're not okay. And you have to decide how much of that you do, but understand as you train aggression into the animal that there's a bad bird, that the fox needs to be chased away, that stray cats have to go, they will expand that to anything that's, that, that, that looks like it's big enough to be a threat to you, the property, or the livestock, and they will show aggression toward it. And you will have to train and channel that aggression properly. So I recommend, again, while the animal is small and can't do any harm, this is the time to have lots of strangers come over. And you have to decide whether you want to train aggression into them while that stranger's on the outside of a gate versus the inside. But you want to, at this point, have them show no aggression to somebody once they come on property. And if you start to see aggression... Then it's time, you know, right then, bring friends over. Bring other animals over. If you want to be able to have dogs visit, you need to have an introduction procedure. You need to plan all of this now because if you're training aggression, the dog will naturally expand the aggression. They will take on a perimeter that this is theirs to defend. And unless they know that this, this being has been approved by the master, then it is to be aggressed upon. Now, some dogs will just bark. Some will nip, some will kill. And, and so you have to learn and channel the energy of your own animal and understand your own animal. See, I have no doubt if somehow a stray dog got onto this property, my, my dog, Charlie, will kill that dog. Especially if that dog shows any aggression whatsoever. If it cowers, if it, if it, if it you know, yields, if it, if, it, if, if it behaves in a way that says, I'm not a threat, he might let that work. He might naturally pack integrate with that animal. If that animal shows any aggression, he's going either to kill the animal or the animal's going to kill him, depending on who's the bigger dog in the fight at that point. Because that's, that's his level of aggression. And you need to, you're probably, you got Pyrenees in there, you can have that level of aggression in a different way than a pit mix. But you need to understand and channel and control that and getting the dog as much exposure as possible. The other thing I would do, If you ever want to be able to travel with this dog, you want to be able to take it to PetSmart, you want to be able to take it on road trips, you want to take it when you go out of town, you want it to be able to get in the car, start training the dog in and out of the vehicle now, take the dog to Starbucks, get the dog a puppy whip, take him to Petco, you know, once you know he's, wait a little bit on the Petco thing because you can get diseases and stuff like that, you know, he's had all his vaccinations and, and, and whatever, and you, you're past the, I would say get past four months. And at that point, where, where it's dog-friendly, take your dog. Put them on a leash. Take them there. Take them to parks. Kids want to pet them. If you want the dog to be sociable, let the kids pet them. If you want them to stay away from strangers, don't let kids pet them. But you got to establish this now. And the easiest time to establish aggressive and non-aggressive behavior is when the aggression can't really do any damage. And that's now while the dog is small and, and subject to, um, to being basically... Uh, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Um, subject to manipulation, basically. Easily subject to manipulation to what you want uh, before he forms his own opinions on things. Next up, uh, Rick in New Jersey says, This isn't the normal all teachers are liberal fascists polluting our children article. It showed the psychology behind how mass populations can fall under ideals like Nazis in North Korea. In 1967, a teacher from Palo Alto radicalized his students into a fascist party in five days. Here's what he taught humanity that week, and the experiment progressed. The results scared even him. It's an article on Medium, and it's pretty long. So I have a link to it, and you can read it yourself. But I'll give you the gist of it. So this, this guy was the, uh, the classic history teacher in my memory. Like, of all the teachers, the ones I most identified with were history teachers. Uh, especially the good ones. I had some terrible history teachers, too. But I had some good ones that really made history come alive, that talked about it, that told stories, etc. And he was kind of all these, the happy-go-lucky guy. And the guy that you might call, you know, Mr. C, or you might even call him Ken or something like that, you know. Um, well, one day the students came in, and he said, well, there's no more of this. You're going to call me Mr. Whatever his name was. I don't even remember. It doesn't, doesn't really matter here. And uh, he taught them order on day one. Sit up, straight, etc. He did it authoritarian, but he was still himself, a charismatic history teacher. Shows up to class the next day, class is sitting rigid and at attention, waiting for him. He calls his movement the third wave. He teaches the class to salute each other with their right hand across their chest, palm slightly cupped downward, and uh, begins to teach them about hierarchy about mission and purpose, some catchy catchphrases. Movement starts to grow. This is all in the week. Kids start skipping other classes to go to his third wave class. Kids from other schools, by the end of the week, are cutting out of their schools to go to his class. He appoints a couple of the kids, teaches them about policing and authority within the ranks as basically special police. He also tells them that if uh, you stay true to the ideology of the movement, you'll get an A. And uh, if you're really not into it, but you don't make any problems, you get a C. But if you directly oppose it, you'll get sent and banished to the library during class to get an F. And toward the end, he has a couple of the boys escort two of the girls that questioned it to the library as his secret police. One of the kids shows up in the faculty area with the teacher, and when he's told he has to leave, he says, I'm his designated bodyguard. The guy eventually tells the class that this is part of a larger national movement. There's a big rally going on on Friday, and there will be a national head of the organization will be on TV to talk to them. He puts the TV in front of the group, which has grown and swollen at this point. And they're waiting anxiously, and they get static for a while, and they realize there's no national movement, no one's coming. He explains the whole thing to them. And uh, diffuses it before it becomes something more dangerous than it possibly could have. And notices later in his life, he runs into one of his former students at UC Berkeley, and they're organizing things and using a lot of what they learned from that. <laughs> and the student even salutes him with the cupped hand across the chest. He realizes how dangerous this is and how fast it could go. And today, psych psychologists, uh, psychology studies and all, uh, universities all over the country 
talk about how this is and how dangerous this is and use it as an example of you know things going wrong. Here's my problem with that. I bet most of them focus on the fascism thing. And see, what I think we haven't learned from this is it doesn't matter what the ideology is. I think he chose fascism because, you know, 1967, we're only 22 years away from World War II. So you would think that when people hear things like the third wave and have a salute that's basically a Nazi salute, but instead of going up, it goes across the chest, they'd start setting off some alarms and bells and stuff like that. But there's something else that's going on in the country at this time. What did I talk about today? The Russians. Communists. Well, the fascists weren't the enemy anymore. They were the play enemy that Jimmy and Johnny went and fought a war against when they played guns before they got the Child Protective Services called on them for doing something crazy like that, like they do today. But, they, you know, really it was the Russians. I grew up it was the Russians. You guys grew up it was the Russians. And while communism and fascism are both forms of socialism, they are different in how they're marketed and how they're used. Results are largely the same, gnashing of teeth, death, etc. But they are very different in how they look. And fascism makes a good false opposition, a good false dichotomy to socialism and communism. So you had students that were a lot more obedient and following of authority then than they are today, plus the Red Scare, McCarthy, <laughs> all that you know, had been going on. And so this message probably resonated with them. But this, this type of thinking can be used to take and sell any ideology to any group of people, especially when they're in a situation with a charismatic leader that's in a position of authority. So, that's the colleges of America, folks. And the ideology these kids are learning today is just as dangerous as fascism. In fact, I'll tell you the one thing about fascism that makes it probably the more dangerous ideology than almost all other political ideologies. Economically, it works. Fascism can look a lot more like capitalism than, than, than traditional communist socialism. And it can look like it works for the people it's supposed to work for a lot longer, even though it ends in the same misery. Uh, so it can, be, it can be painted a little bit better, so it makes it a little easier to sell. But today we're selling these kids on socialism that's really fascism that we're calling communism, in opposition to the fascism that it is. And what's the more dangerous thing is when the charismatic leader indoctrinating the student believes in the ideology themselves. And that's the danger of where we're at today. And we haven't learned from this experiment. We haven't learned from this experiment. Because if you think about what happens today in a university setting, is exactly that... that, that If you speak up, if you oppose, you are punished. You are punished. You are ostracized. You are attacked. You are put off to the side. You're encouraged to narc out people. They now have, you know, they've been doing this for years. As long as we've been doing the show. But they have ways for the students to tell the faculty if there's a hate crime or a microaggression or this shit. We haven't learned from this at all. You should go read this today. It's too long to read on the air. There's a second article, too, that's a little bit longer more in-depth from the same guy. I'll, I'll link to both of them. But this is dangerous. And this philosophy that, you know, 
the problem is that once again, once the people in power believe in what they're doing, it goes from being an experiment to being something that's actually really easy to do. And we do sit back and wonder how can entire nations and they tell you this this bullshit about oh well you know they'll see us as liberators or whatever when we go in there and they never do unless they've reached the point where the government's gone completely totalitarian and even sometimes then they don't if they believe strongly enough that you're the enemy and you finally show up and that prove them right and and this is where a lot of the stupidity and hysteria and nonsense come today where you know every republican's a nazi And, and Trump's a super Nazi. And I don't generally like Republicans or Trump, but this, this, this shit has gone and made people crazy. And this is how they get made crazy. Through this type of freaking mass hysteria, mass hypnosis in many ways. And the number one way to sell an ideology is to create an enemy that you require the ideology to fight. And if we can make that a common enemy and make people convinced that no matter how many mistakes we make or how bad we are, we're better than that. And without this, we'll have that. And then it'll really be a problem. You can sell them on anything, including the fact that to assume that a man is a man is an aggressive, aggressive action. And that's not okay. But to punch somebody in the face for doing it, that is okay. And that's what's happening to our children today. And it is a very dangerous damn thing. Next up, and I just thought the fact that I even had to answer an email like this meant I probably should say it on the air. Uh, this comes from Jay. Jay said, is it a bad idea to discuss salary with coworkers? Details. I recently took a new position here at work, mostly a lateral move, but there was a nice bump in salary. A friend and coworker was congratulating me and asked if there was an increase in pay. I told her I was going from hourly to salary and what my pay was before and after the new position. I work with a lot of departments and solve a lot of problems. So I'm not worried about someone thinking I might be overpaid. I certainly don't advise it, but is there any reason I may not want to tell people what my salary is, Jay? Jay, never, ever, ever do what you did ever, ever, ever again. I already told you that by email, so I'll explain it to everybody else. The reason you don't do this, despite all of the well-thought-out explanations I could give you, is there is nothing to gain from doing it, and there is potentially something to lose. Let me say it again. There's nothing to get. What do you gain? Her, her admiration? Her envy? Right? I mean, what, what do you get by telling, you know, Kay or Debbie or whatever her name is, yeah, they gave me a, gave me a raise when they gave me this promotion. I mean, and, and, and that's one thing. I got a raise. Yeah, I got a raise. Okay. That's, that's one thing. It's expected that if you get promoted, you get a raise. It's almost, I would say that's okay. Yeah, I got an increase. How much? I, I don't really want to discuss it. I don't discuss pay with, at work with, with empl fellow employees. That's the whole answer. And the reason I say it's, it's okay is kind of like, I do want people in my place of employment motivated to get promoted and to do their best and to work hard. And if getting promoted means you don't get a raise... Well, that incentive's out the window. So, you know, I, I, I don't know that I would go out of my way to do it, but if somebody said, well, you got promoted, yeah. Well, you got a raise, right? Well, yeah. How much? No, I don't discuss that. That's the whole conversation. Because what do I, and specifically telling her what you did make and what you're making now and the, the, basically the, 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 the salary structure, 
probably nothing will come of it because it is significant in, in, in how you changed your position and it would be expected. But I'll tell you right now, I've gotten rid of people for less. Because one of the reasons I pay somebody more is they do a better job for me. And one of the ways they do a better job for me is to shut their effing mouth about things that are not important to the workplace and telling Tom that you get paid better than he is ain't. And it causes problems because Tom comes to me and wants to know why Jay makes more money. My answer to Tom is because Jay works his ass off, except Jay don't have a job here no more because Jay don't keep his mouth shut. And if you want to keep your job, you need to shut your mouth and get back to work. And I'm a little bit more uh, diplomatic about the way I put that. But every person that's ever worked for me, I've negotiated what I'm going to pay them based on what I thought I was getting. And then they got raises based on what I actually did get. And then they either got fired or didn't get raises based on what I wasn't getting. And if I have two people doing the same job and one's better, I pay the better one more money. And I don't need the one that's getting less to be told that. He's either going to up his performance and up his income, or he's not going to, and I'm going to get rid of him. But as a, as, a, as a supervisor or an owner or what have you, I might have to deal with him for a long time. He might be the best I can do. He still doesn't command the way somebody else is getting. And the higher you move in management or ownership, the more you'll understand this. I've had people all the time, well, why don't you just fire that guy? He sucks, doesn't he? Well, he sucks. But let's say he sucks out of 100 as being a gold star and then a zero being he's dead, he sucks a 55, right? He sucks a 55. He barely gets the job done. If the best alternative I have is a 40, I'm keeping him, but I'm paying him the bare minimum until he either becomes a 70 or I find a 70 to replace his ass with. Do you understand? Like, And because of this, you cannot have this discussion, and I'm going to go back to the most simplistic explanation there is for this you gain nothing by telling somebody what you make and you risk your job so don't do it all right uh next up uh hal says i at least in your recent episode on meat and sausage then your episode with ryan llewellyn on teas i'm now down the rabbit hole before weren't i've been making ciders for years using the balloon method i learned on the show and i'm ready to jump into mead i'm located in new york city so i truly have complete access to almost anything From a culinary perspective. You know what? That's the one thing I love about New York City. I, I mean, I will admit that, that, that when you talk about being able to find something, uh, food or otherwise, if you can dream it up, it exists there. You can find it. And that's kind of cool. Anyway, he says, in doing so, I ran across a dried flower called Os Osmanthus over and over again. After looking it up online, I found out the flowers of this plant are used in an apricot flavor alternative in teas in China. After doing some quick Google flu, I landed on the following post, which details a subtle apricot peach saffron flavor of the flower. The post also has a recipe for a dessert soup made with tapioca and the osmanthus flower, which I'm going to try tomorrow. So my first meat, I'll be using this dried flower and some other flavors. I'll let you know how it goes, and maybe you or the TSP community can add it to your arsenal. How? Um, I think this is really cool. I don't want to spend too much time on it because I don't know anything about it other than what I can read online. I have a link to uh, where you can learn more about it that Hal sent me. Uh, and I have a link on Amazon. You can either get eight ounces or uh, one and three quarter ounces of it. 
eight ounces of it, which is about half a pound, is, um, uh, hold on, that's the one and three quarter, which means I made the links wrong. So I'll have to fix those. Uh, but a 1.76 ounce package is nine bucks. And I think a half pound is like 18. I'll, I'll check on that. But this seems like something worth experimenting with. It's, it's been referred to as the saffron of China. And I, I thought more interesting would be the plant itself. It's also known as sweet olive or sweet olive leaf. And it looks in some ways kind of similar um, to um, Eliagnus uh, species like uh, Gumi and Autumn Olive, though it's not. It's in a different family, but it, you know, my pattern recognition kind of goes off. I checked on USDA zone hardiness, and some say 9, and some say 8, and some say down to 7. Uh, so I don't know if maybe there's different varieties of it or what have you, uh, but it might be look something worth looking into planting. It might even be something that's one of those types of things that's worth, you know, you, you put it in a big pot and you can roll it in and out of the house. So I don't know how much blossom you would get off of a relatively small pot size one of them, but it, it might be worth che uh, checking out. It also kind of makes me think of the fact I've never done it yet, and I really need to this year, but the blossoms on autumn olive. In the morning when they first start kind of that nectar flow, the smell of them is just unbelievable. And I don't think it would be apricot flavor, but I've always wanted to make a mead with those, and I just have never gotten around to it yet. Anyway, um, again, I have links where you can check this out, and I will fix the one that goes to the wrong size. If anybody's used this or played with it, I'd love to hear your comments on it. But I like stuff like this because, you know, I might get some of this to make a mead out of it. In fact, I'm going to. Um... I'm not sure how much volume there is in a one and three quarter ounce package of it, uh, but that's probably what I'll start with, and hopefully it'll be enough to make a gallon of meat out of it. Um, but I'll check it out and I'll try it. And this is like the cool thing of like, okay, now here's something you didn't even know existed. And now you have this kind of rare exotic ingredient that actually ain't that hard to come by that you can start using in other ways. And I, I think that's really cool. It's the power of our community. So thank you for sending that in, Hal. And I'll give it a shot. Anybody, like I said, that's just tried it in anything, let us know what you've done with it and what, what, you know, what your thoughts are on it. So I went ahead and fixed that link uh, right away before I went on. And uh, $24 for half a pound. So the stuff is, is expensive. Not, not saffron expensive, but expensive. So if it can be grown in your area, it might be something worth uh, taking a look at. Next up, Rick sends me an email. It says, sending this to my work mail, but I was just wondering what you think about this news story. It's in the Wall Street Journal, and it's why districts across the country are banning homework. And I went to read it, but they wanted me to log in and have an account and all that, and I didn't feel like doing that with the Wall Street Journal. So I looked up, and apparently there's a lot of news on this right now. It's kind of a thing that, that school districts across the country are either seriously reducing or even getting rid of homework altogether. And some people think it's a good thing, and some people think it's a bad thing. The rationale behind it, it doesn't make any sense to me, though. It's about reducing student stress. And you can see where people that are sick and tired of every little kid having their head padded, padded and told them they're a special little snowflake would oppose this if that's the reasoning that they were given. I'm going to give you my opinion on why I've always thought homework was stupid and just shouldn't be a thing. Now, I'm okay, again, with you know kids having a project for the quarter or you know a research paper to do in a given class, as long as they'll have like one for every class in the same quarter or something like that where it, it turns into homework every night. Um, 
I have always been the person that's worked more than 40 hours a week, but in general, that's a job. 40 hours a week's a job. And uh, we send our kids to school for about a 40-hour week. And we give our kids, in, in many ways, against our will, because education is compulsory in the United States and subject to punishment by the state if you don't comply with it. Yes, I know that homeschooling is an option, but in the end, for many people, it's not really an option. And, and parents are told not only must your child attend school, they're also told the school they must attend. And the only option is very expensive, otherwise for many parents. And they can't, parents can't even say like, this school sucks and I want my kid to go to this school over there. And, and, and we pay a great deal of money, not directly out of pocket, but in the form of property tax for this to happen. Um, and many of us are still paying for it long after our kids are grown and done and paying thousands and thousands of dollars a year for this mandatory education. In this scenario, our children are forced to go to a place that is an awful lot like a minimum security prison uh, and, and comply with what they're told to do for eight hours a day for 13 years, K through 12. And there are people there who we pay lots of money, whether I don't believe the propaganda, all, every teacher is ready to eat freaking ramen noodle every night and die of starvation at the end of the week. It's bullshit. Uh, for the hours work, teachers are paid well. To teach these kids reading, writing, math, microaggressions, and uh, gender identification, and which bathroom to use, and whatever. All right, but all this shit that they're supposed to teach them how to do. So the kid goes to class for 40 minutes to an hour per class. The teacher flaps their gums on history or science or math during that time, and then gives the kid a whole shitload of work to take home and do and bring back the next day to be graded. Uh, this is why homeschoolers often get through a year's worth of learning in a few months. The teachers flapping their gums, running their mouth, whatever, most of the kids are either bored because they understand what the teacher's saying or are not following it, and because they're taught to comply, which is sit there with your mouth shut, don't say anything, and they tune out. So then the kids go do the work, and either they do it or they don't, and they're no better off for it. They're no better off for having done that work than they were without doing it. They don't learn from it. They prove that they learned by doing it. Teachers should give the assignments in class and have the kids do the assignments in class. And they would then be able to identify immediately the kids that got it, sort of got it, kind of sort of got it, and don't got it at all. And address those kids as needed in class right now, then, and that would be doing your effing job, teachers. That's what your job is to do. Your job isn't to give my kid a whole bunch of bullshit that they don't understand and then send them home to me and I gotta try to figure your common core freaking math out when I can teach them how to do the damn math in about 10% of the time and they'd actually understand it. No matter what it is you're forced to teach them, your job is to teach them that and by them doing the work with, with you, in front of you, in the desk that they're forced to sit in anyway, you'd be able to get to that. And I know I'm going to hear hate mail from teachers again. You need to understand how hard it is. Shut up. I'm done. I'm done with the bullshit. Because I went to school and I did this. And you get, you know, 50 math problems to do or whatever every night. And the teachers say, well, I don't give that much homework. I only give about 30 minutes of homework. 
Well, my kid has seven classes. So if everybody only gives 30 minutes of homework, my kid's coming home working for another three and a half hours. You know, and by the time your kids are in high school, if you're actually putting your foot in the ass, they should have a part-time job. You see where this doesn't make sense? And what I feel is if you get my kid 40 hours a week, nine months out of the year, you have plenty of time for that child to do whatever level of work is necessary to learn the material and prove they know the material while you have them. And they should be focusing on self-determined things otherwise. And here's the real rub. The majority of them, that is what they are going to do anyway. They're going to get somebody else to do their homework. They're going to copy somebody else's homework. They're going to use the back of the book. They're just not going to do the work. Whatever. But that's generally what, what kids are going to do. So why don't you have them do the work in class? And if you say you can't, I'm going to say this one more time and piss teachers off, then you suck at your job. Then you suck at your job. Then maybe you shouldn't use freaking 104 steps to solve a simple arithmetic problem. Maybe if you didn't do that, you'd have time to teach them. But it's not new. It's not just because of that. I remember this shit when I was in school. And basically, this is how I did homework. What was the stuff that was going to hurt me the most if I didn't do it? And I did that in study hall, and the rest of it I just didn't do it. Because I didn't care. There was no reason for me to do it. Well, I figured it out. Well, Mike, I'm still going to get an A or a B in this class, and that's good enough, and I don't care. And you'd real quick also be able to determine students that don't need to be in your class that should be at a higher level of learning. You know, this would actually, this is what teaching would be. Standing there flapping your gums, doing problems on the board that you have been told how to do that you would never do that way, or writing down notes that's basically a copy of what's in the book, or sitting there flapping your gums in some other way. That's not teaching. And the fact that your kids can't do the work is proof that it's not teaching. The fact that our, our school, our, our, our measurement, our measuring stick, Against the rest of the world, we keep going down every year. That's proof that what we're doing is not working. I love banning homework. I love banning homework. But when I work and I work overtime, I get paid more. I get paid more. I get more. That's how work works. That's how we should set things up for our kids. If they want to get more, let them do more. If they want to do the thing the state says they have to do, Eight hours a day, five days a week. That's more than enough time to get it done. And if you can't get it done, change the way you're doing it. There's a way. I assure you. And here's what I would say. If you can't figure out how to get the work done that kids need to progress K through 12, five days a week, eight hours a day, I don't trust you educating my kid in the first place. Just like if you can't figure out how merit pay is going to work, I don't trust you educating my kids. Here's the thing. I don't trust y'all educating my kids But I do think that moving to a system where the work is done in school would solve a lot of problems and make a system that's broken a little less so. All right, let's take another one. So sticking with the, uh, the education sector for a minute here, we've got an article here in Forbes. This is 
College is dead, according to the new book, Leverage Learning. I'll give you a little bit of the article. You can read the rest if you want. Danny Innie has a clear point of view. College is old, musty, and maybe dead. College is too expensive, he added. Post-college underemployment is the norm from a company perspective. Everyone who's hired someone knows it doesn't matter where you went to college. Everyone has to train, promote people. It's frustrated how tough the process is. This is not news. I'm just connecting the dots. Any wrote leveraged learning in response to these thoughts as a manifesto for the new learning paradigm. Any is uniquely qualified to see these trends. He dropped out of school himself at age 15 and then built his own path to get his own education. My own educational path was non-traditional, so I am on the lookout for alternative ways to get educated, he added. The message I want to get out with this book is the way we've been thinking about education is wrong. The education industry globally is $4.4 trillion. We're not using it efficiently, and we're not getting a return. His book articulates the changing landscape of learning and proposes new paradigm for learners from colleges throughout employment. Andy thinks about education from the perspective of, one, lifetime learners, people who care about their own education and about education of people around them. Two, experts and professionals, people who have to stay current and relevant. Uh, three, business leaders, people who are responsible for attracting and retaining talent. And an article goes on. You can read the rest if you want. It, I want to speak to the summary here that college is dead. Um, obviously, I think this guy's using a little bit of literary license and a hook, a marketing hook, and I, I appreciate that. Not everything on the Survival Podcast is about how to survive a, a, a marching army of zombies. Uh, I get that. Uh, but I don't think college is dead, and I don't think that's the way to come at this. Some people are going, really, did Jack just say that? Yeah, and it's what I've always tried to say. I think what we have as a problem with college is the number of people who are going how many colleges there are today, how many paths there are through college that are unnecessary. The, the reality is not everybody's going to be a CEO. Not everybody's going to be a president. Not everybody's even going to be a, a, a mid-level manager. And most mid-level managers probably don't need college to be mid-level managers. They might on paper, but they don't in reality. The, the key thing that he hit on is a $4.4 trillion industry. And this is the problem with education. Education has become an industry. It's about money. It's about money. And when the government took the approach of making sure that just about anybody that wanted to could get money to go to school, schools figured out a way to let anybody that wanted to get in. The, the, the requirements... To get into college today are a joke compared to what they were even in 1985. In 1985, there were people that wanted to go to college that were like, wah, wah, sorry, you're not getting in. I mean, maybe you could get, maybe you could get into community college and get a few courses under your belt. Maybe you could actually learn the things you were supposed to have learned already. And maybe if you proved yourself, eventually you could get into college, but you couldn't just go to college. Like today, I mean, I noticed when my son went to UTA, University of Texas at Arlington, that the lower your class rank was, the lower your SAT or ACT test scores required to get in were. The dumber you were, the more they lowered the bar for you, and the smarter you were, the higher they put the bar for you. Now, if that's not indicative of trying to let everybody that wants to go, go, well, then what is? And the reason is simple. Our colleges and universities today know that if Johnny wants to come and Johnny fills out paperwork, Johnny can get loans and Johnny can come to school and Johnny can pay his bills. And they don't get graded on whether or not Johnny graduates. 
They don't get graded on whether or not Johnny, if he does graduate, gets a damn job. All they want is an ass in a seat that pays the tuition. And this is where we've gone to today. And the teachers of this country have been brainwashed to tell all the little Johnnies and all the little Tammies that every damn one of them should go to college. And what did we talk about with indoctrination and, and, and social experiments? If the people that are doing the indoctrination believe it, it's far more effective. And it doesn't get called off at the end of the week when they realize what a mistake it is. And we have brainwashed and delusioned our nation to believe that the most valuable thing that every single person can do is get a college education. And we broke college. College isn't broken. I'm mean, sorry, college isn't dead. College is broken. Because people are there that don't belong there, and they're in the way of the people that do. And there's a lot of opportunity in the world that doesn't involve a college degree. There's a lot of opportunity in the world that involves a trade degree or a two-year degree. There's a lot or a skill set certification. Education is not the problem. The approach to education that everybody should go do this thing this way for this kind of job is the problem. And, and I'm telling you right now, if you couldn't just print money to go to school, now you're printing debt for yourself to your 70 years of age or whatever, but if you couldn't do it, we wouldn't have degrees in gender studies. That wouldn't be a thing. There's probably half of the degrees that people are getting today that if we didn't have this fake, phony money way people can go to school, those degrees wouldn't exist. Half the damn colleges that are out there wouldn't exist, and the ones that did would be smaller. What do you need? What, think about running a company, a sizable company with 10,000 employees. In what world do you need all 10,000 of them to have a college education? And we're not talking about just the guy that sweeps the floor. What about the person that answers the phone and does customer service? A lot of them do have degrees today. They're underemployed, as this guy points out. But why do they need a degree? I'll tell you why they have a degree, because there's a surplus of people with degrees. So you might as well get one with a degree. It's like when you go to the, the, buy a car, and they say, do you want the alloy wheels? And you're like, not really. And they go, well, right now we're running a special where you get the alloy wheels, you don't have to pay for them. Well, shit, put those bitches on there. That's what your degree is for freaking people hiring people today. Well, shit, might as well. It doesn't prove that you can do anything or that you know anything. The way to fix it is to make college for people that belong in college and that type of education system are pursuing degrees that are relevant to their employment that are actually going to help them, which is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 40% going to college today. And the other 60% or more have no business being in a four-year university. They just don't. And, I'm I, 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 and I know I'm going to hear the bullshit back lash, but I've talked to way too many people with degrees and went, this person's stupid. Not ignorant. Stupid. This person's stupid. This person has an IQ of about 90. The fact that they were able to get a degree proves that the degree doesn't mean anything. You all know people like this, whether you want to admit it or not. And I'm here, well, I went to college and blah, 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 and I have a great life today. And it, Well, good for you. you. Maybe you're part of the 40 to 60%. I mean, if you have a college degree, you should be able to figure out that there's a significant block there and you might be in it. And it doesn't do anything to change the argument for the idiots. And if you got through college and you were smart, I guarantee you when you look to your left and right, you probably saw two morons. Because it's probably about one in three that really have their shit together in school today. 
And they're the ones that should be there. The entire system has become nothing but a money machine. That's the problem. It's not dead. It's broken. Now, it may be dead from the standpoint of it may be to the point where it's irrevocably broken. I'm not sure. But uh, I'll tell you what, your degree doesn't mean anything to me. What you've done with it or what you can do with it or how smart you are, your skill level, etc., that, that's what means something to me. And if it happens to coincide with a degree, great. And if it doesn't, then I don't really care. And more and more people, from an employer standpoint, are getting like I am. And it is, it, it, I think maybe what we're going to see is, that, like I said, the death of the education system as we know it. Colleges won't go away, but a hell of a lot of them are going to close their doors. That's my, that's my prognostication over the next 20 years. So last one of the day is on prepper groups. Uh, Steve says, how to keep your prepper group organized, how to keep members accountable, motivate them to work on their tasks between meetings. Number one, I'm in a prepper group with 10 families. We meet weekly. Each meeting we have a class assigned to a member to teach. During the weekly meetings, we hold quick update session. We go around the room. Each person gives an update on an area they're responsible for. We have loosely adopted the Army's S-Shop system to organize this. We have a couple members that continue to fail to do their tasks when assigned. One does his homework in class regularly. They do not pay attention during the classes. Normally, this would not be a hard decision. We would just get rid of the person, but he's been in the group from the start and holds a lot of resources for the group. Two, we're starting to keep things organized and resources, assignments, and Google Sheets. Some members' ten hats are starting to show. They think Google or China will find us. I've told them that no one outside of this group, and that is a bit egotistical, think otherwise, uh, could possibly care who we are. How would you deal with this problem? Would you use something like Google Sheets to keep members on the same page? How do you keep members focused between meetings? Thanks, Steve. Well, I don't use Google Documents because um, I just hate them. I just hate it. I, I don't like it. Um, I've had people, and it had nothing to do with Chinese or Google or government or whatever. I just don't like it. I've had people that have worked with me, and, and my buddy David, me, and Nicole worked on stuff for the workshop, and she's like, I made this all in a Google document, and David and I are like, well, that's great. It's staying in Word, and we can email it back and forth because Google's stupid. Um, we just don't... <laughs> Don't use it. Um, so I, I really don't know that I care how you do that. I, I just tell you that this is this right here is why I'm not big on prepper groups. I I I I just I don't see it as being anything except Boy Scouts for grown ass adults in many ways. And it's just something. I mean, I did this for about 15 minutes and went. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I'm more for getting group people together that are bound by a common ideology and just doing fun stuff and not really worrying about who does what and teaching classes and all this stuff. I mean, um, and this guy has lots of resources, but he does his homework in class. Maybe he's not a problem. Maybe his resources are the value that he offers your group. Um, I, I generally see whenever it becomes a prepper group that this is a pattern that occurs. The people that just get together and hang out once a week or twice a month or whatever generally enjoy themselves a hell of a lot more. And the real value in a group is the group itself. Um, we all walk at different speeds. We all run at different speeds. We all walk sometimes and run other times. We all have different skill sets and value and knowledge and things that we can do. And talking about things like having some extra gas around and stuff like that is probably a good thing. 
having everybody's information, being able to get in touch is probably a good thing. But I think if you push too much structure on it, it becomes something that's more trouble than it's worth to people. Maybe they keep coming around because they actually enjoy the social interaction, and that's why they do their homework in class. You know? A little less than there, I guess. I just wouldn't put this much effort into the, the prepper group concept, and I would focus more on the group concept. Like, you know, do, if people aren't paying attention to classes, maybe the classes aren't very good. Maybe the people teaching them aren't very good at teaching, even if they know the material well. I don't know. I think you might get along better if everybody just met for coffee and such at IHOP once a week or something. Or went somewhere, did something together, took a freaking hike or something. I don't want to rain on your parade, but I've never heard of one of these groups really working out over the long period of time. Now, maybe there's been one or two, but generally speaking, when I do hear about one that's the exception to the rule, if I ask about it in three or four months, it doesn't exist anymore. So I, I don't know. Now, the tin hat thing is going to be common in this space. There's a reason people are acting in fear, and generally, if you do something in this space, some portion of it will be acting in fear. It's the only thing that gets a lot of people off their ass to do anything. And since they have to justify what they're doing, then they have to justify it by finding a fear that they can believe in. Right, So they have to find a fear that's significant enough that it warrants meeting with a bunch of people every week to do homework and teach classes. And, and so, I, you know, to me, preparedness group is about knowing, well, Bill has a truck, and Bill's a mechanic. Bill lives over there, and this is Bill's number. And Tom, Tom's a really good cook. We can have barbecues at Tom's house and... You know, as long as we help with the cost, Tom will think it's fun because Tom gets to show off his barbecue ability. Billy? Billy's good at fishing. If we want to set up a fishing trip, Billy's the guy to talk to. Debbie? Debbie's really good at sewing. Tommy and Billy? They're not going to sew. They're not going to give a shit. But they might financially support her when she has some stuff for sale. So we should make sure that if she's working on something, people know about it. Maybe they can buy some of it and we start doing business together. All of us like to garden. Maybe we should talk about gardening. You know, these two guys here don't garden, but, you know, one of them's the guy that's really good at cooking. That See, to me, it's, my grandparents, if I would have said, Grandpa... We're preppers. He would have been like, what, what the hell, what, what the hell are you talking about? You know, and I, if I explained all, he would have said, well, yeah, that means we're adults, dummy. You know, and, and if I said, let's put together a prepper group, I would have immediately, as that word come out of my mouth, I would have immediately reflexively started clenching and ducking to my left as I would know that it wasn't, you know, a serious offense. So instead of getting a right, which is going to hit me in the left side of the head, I'm going to get a little left clip, from a little soft clip to the ear, so I would be ready to kind of roll with that sucker for realizing I'd said something stupid to my grandfather. Because he would have said, what the hell do you think this road is, dummy? The Depskys are up there, and the Wastitians are over there, and the Catchers are over there, and that's your uncle over there, and we all got each other's backs. They wouldn't have met and taught classes. 
The people that would have, you would have had social meetings that happened all the time. And the guy that wanted to learn more about guns would have talked to the guy that knows more about guns. And the guy that wanted to know more about gardens would have talked to the guy that knows more about gardens. The guy that wanted to go fishing would have asked the guy, my Uncle Pete, that knew every damn trout stream in the, in the state. And I think that's a better approach. The common ideology is useful. There's a reason to get together. But I think making it more social and less organized would probably work better and just figure out who knows what so you know who to rely on in a situation. Cross-training's great, but specialization has its place too. You know, there's a reason in the Army they have a medic and a mechanic. And the, and, and the mechanic may learn a little bit about first aid, might even go to a combat life-saving class if he wants to take a little bit more initiative on it. But he's never going to be the medic, and the medic might know how to change a tire, but he's not going to know how to do a valve job on a Humvee. You see how it works. I think what we're trying to do is create an artificial situation, and that's why some people regret it or object to it, and it may be some of the reason you're having trouble like making a decision to get rid of certain people or doing the least is because they might offer more value. And maybe the reason they offer more value is they think a little bit more. I do everything last minute. Trust me, when I go do a presentation, I'm building my PowerPoint deck on the airplane. Why? I got other shit to get done. Why do you care? Why do you care when I did it? It's probably better than everybody else's who worked on theirs for four months. You see, this is the way we have to start thinking if we're going to have groups. We need communities, not structure. Communities naturally form structure. We end up knowing, hey, you know what? If you're feeling sick, talk to Debbie. She's the one that makes the elderberry syrup. Pretty soon, either Debbie's got a business within you know a little micro economy going, or the people that don't want to buy it from Debbie learn from Debbie, and that happens naturally. This is human interaction. That that's my thought. In fact, I'd kind of like to think about a way that we can create organized disorganization and maybe make this more common because I think there's a lot of people that don't put groups together specifically for all the problems that I pointed out that maybe would be better off just putting together communities. I liked a lot of what Marjorie Wildcraft had to say when she was on here years ago about building community by holding events that, that bring in people who would be thinking about the same type of thing, like you know, get a, com a, a community center where you can reserve space and then advertise you're going to be playing you know, a video of a Jeff Lawton permaculture video or something, and everybody can discuss it later on. Now, you don't have to have everybody teach class. Just relax a little bit, and I think you'll enjoy things more, and you'll get more out of them. Uh, I don't mean to tell you your business, but you did ask, and that's my thoughts on it. With that, we've about wrapped up another episode. want to remind you guys the uh, the lifetime MSB sale will happen tomorrow uh, at 9 a.m. Central. It will happen. I went ahead and automated it to make sure it posted. I didn't do that today because I really need to be on standby when that posts. There's some manual processes and things that go on uh, for a lifetime membership, and I want to be there to fix things. So I'm sorry that it didn't happen today. Again, I just thought it was unfair. Uh, if somebody had, had you know gotten there at 9 o'clock and it didn't happen, and by 10 o'clock they went on and doing whatever they're doing in their life, and I turn it on and all of a sudden they missed out on the opportunity. So here's the big news, though. Because of this, I realized I'd messed something up and forgot about it. Paul Wheaton has sent me a special bonus that I can give out to anybody I want to. It's one of his many uh, video products on uh, rocket mass heaters. So um, I can give away up to 20. I'm doing 15 sales. I'm going to figure out what to do with the other five. But 
everybody that buys a lifetime membership will also get um, a high-definition instant download of building a Cobb-style rocket mass heater that's 15 bucks if you buy it from Paul Wheaton. You'll get that for free, so it's a bonus. And then there's another unadvertised bonus that all members of the Lifetime Club get. I won't tell you what it is because it's unadvertised, but most people think it's pretty cool when they get their hands on it, and nobody's ever abused it yet, so I probably will keep doing it. It's kind of cool. So Lifetime MSB goes on sale tomorrow. Anybody else is interested in MSB, just click on members at thesurvivalpodcast.com to learn more. Next up, let's talk about our uh, T-SPAS item of the day today. Remember, you can always support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com no matter what you buy. It's kind of that last week push for Christmas, and you're probably going to be buying something online. Just go through tspaz.com when you do it, and you help support us. And you can see all the stuff that I review as well. Remember, if you see it there, not only do I own it and use it and paid my own money for it, I'd buy it again or I wouldn't recommend it. Now, I mentioned today that what kind of got me hosed up was we had Max groomed. Max is a 150-pound German Shepherd, and about this time of year, he looks like a sheep needing shearing. He has fur coming out of fur, coming out of fur. The dog looks like he's got a hundred little Kleenex boxes on his body. You pull fur out and just keeps coming. And you wonder, like my wife brushed him on Saturday, and it looks like a dog exploded in her backyard. Uh, so there's a point where with him we get him groomed. The other two dogs, you know, we pretty much do everything ourselves. I clean their ears, I do their nails, we do their brushing, etc., and we give them baths. A bath for a dog in July, a big dog like Charlie, not that big a deal. You take him outside and give him a bath. It was like 38 degrees when I woke up today. I don't want to give a dog a bath when it's 38 degrees outside, especially a 100-pound pit bull that doesn't like baths. I found this stuff a long time ago now, going back over a year, called uh, BioGroom, waterless pet shampoo. I use it on Max, too. This stuff's great. You spray the dog, you brush it in his coat, and he smells better, he looks better, he gets all shiny. Uh, I am in love with this stuff. Just sometimes i got to go a little further with Max. But I'm telling you, when I think about it, dogs, if, you ever, if you're a trapper, I was a trapper when I was a kid. I used to run trap line, coon and fox mostly, uh, when I was in high school. And it would amaze me. You know, you wash your dog, and then you, you trap this fox, and it's just Beautiful fur, I mean, just perfectly groomed. And like, well, who gave the fox a bath? And really what our dogs need, because they don't live 100% on meat and they don't live in the wild, is they need kind of a tune-up and to get the oils flowing through their fur and all. And this stuff works. And I discovered it one time. Charlie found something that stunk. I don't know what, but, I mean, the dog smelled like a combination of rotten popcorn and rotten Cheetos. I mean, if you've, if you've ever, you know, like if you ever, I'll bring this popcorn home and then you forgot about it for like a week and popcorn gets that rotten, nasty stink. And if you've ever smelled like a bag of Cheetos and think of mixing those, that's what he smelled like. He didn't get in the garbage. I don't know what he got into, but he stunk. And he mostly stunk on like his face and his neck, hardest place to wash. And it was wintertime. And I, yeah, I don't want to do it. I got a bottle of this stuff. I sprayed him all over with it, and for his face and, and whatnot, I sprayed my hands and like rubbed it on his face, rubbed it on his neck, it didn't bother him at all, brushed him out, and man, he just immediately smelled better, looked better, and he didn't mind getting it done. I really recommend this for your dogs. Um, I, I guess it can be used for cats, too. I've, I've not seen people use it on cats. I don't really recommend any product like this on cats because cats, you know, they lick themselves and all. Um, but definitely for dogs, this stuff is just fantastic. 
It works really good. You got holiday season coming up. You want to clean the dog up a little bit. You look at the reviews on this stuff. It's fantastic. Good grade on Fake Spot. Jack approved. BioGroom waterless bath. No rinse shampoo. Spray the dog. Brush the dog. You're good. I do recommend for shedding, by the way, on dogs, a product called the Furminator. I have a link in the review. Really good shedding brush. That's what Dorothy brushes with Max with, and he looks like he exploded. But day-to-day for simple grooming, to, to even not even have to use this product much, you know what I recommend you use? A simple human hairbrush. Uh, I have a link to one on uh, Amazon. You can look at it to see the style I mean. But they're the ones that are basically like thick bristles, Big brush, little bead on them, plastic. It gives the dog kind of a massage. It gets their natural oils through their fur. It brushes things out. It's not really a shedding brush. The one I have linked, it's 7 bucks. And I think a lot of times we buy a dog product. We don't need a dog product. We need a product. And they'll charge you 20 bucks for a dog brush and a $6 human brush. You can buy it like Edgar Drugs is a better product. So check that out. I don't care if you buy it on Amazon or not, but if you see the style of brush I'm talking about for your dogs, your day-to-day brush, especially your short-haired dogs don't shed a lot, um, this really keeps their coats nice and shiny. I've been kind of amazed the way we take care of our animals and all, how beautiful they really look. Uh, even the cats. The other day we had Dana and Fox in the house because it was like freaking 28 degrees overnight, so we brought them in overnight. And I come out in the morning, Dana was sleeping on the couch, and I sat down and had my coffee for to let it warm up a little before I whipped her out. And I'm sitting there looking at her fur, and it's just glow- the sun's coming in. It's just like shine and mirror. If your animals don't look like that, there's something wrong with their health or their grooming. And I just say to take a look at it, and one of the easy things is brushing and this BioGroom wash. But anything you buy on T-Spaz, you support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. That brings us to our song of the day today. We're back on John Adams' list here. And today, in being Christmas stuff, we have um, a Christmas song. Uh, and this is a classic Christmas piece of music, though it's an instrumental piece called Carol of the Bells. You've heard this before. Many different people have done it. This is 100% played on cellos. And it's really cool. It's from a group on um, Facebook, I'm sorry, YouTube, called Piano Guys. And uh, it's it, one little piece on it here for you. It says, for my fellow music geeks, my favorite part of writing this arrangement is the obligatory Heloma due to the meter difference between the two songs, and particularly Carol of the Bells and God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. Here's what he's talking about. Uh, one is a three-quarter time and one is a four-four time. I hope you like the way they collide. My second favorite part is the intense canon at the end that creates a cluster chord feel and a discordant uh, chord of finally resolving the main theme of both tunes. Shooting locations, if you want to take a look at the video, it's pretty cool. It was in Salt Lake City, Utah, Cottonwood Canyon, Utah, Big Cotton Canyon, Utah, and an ice rink at Gavellian Center in Salt Lake City. So it's all done in Utah. Really cool video. Uh, really awesome that this can all be done with a single instrument. And with that, it's been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.